0: What always amazes me about these times, are we good to go, sound good, Mike, is that there are four types of you in the room. There are those who are here today out of culture and tradition, and well done, thank you for the discipline, very needed. Um, I can't tell you every training run I did when I ran the comrades, but I did finish the comrades because I did many training runs. And for some of you, this is a training run, you won't remember it particularly, but you are here in discipline and devotion and well done. There are those of you who are here out of sentiment, maybe because you know Merrill and I and you've known us since the 70s, and for you we say thank you for the shared love and history and stories that we tell. For others, thirdly, it's a brick in the wall Sunday. Uh, it's not necessarily a high-impact Sunday, but to quote Pink Floyd, it just is that, that, that other stone, that other rock, that other building block that just keeps you moving forward in the great adventure of global gospel faith. But there is a problem with the microphone. Thanks. But there is a fourth group, and for those, there may be one, it may be five, this will be a transforming day for you. You will look back on this day, February 2023, whatever it is, 19th, and it will be a key moment in your life. I have that conviction as I preach a message that's different to the ones I normally preach. Um, but before I dive into that, can I say, firstly, just a huge well done red point? You know, every statistician tells us, social scientist, historian, business uh, kind of database will tell you that, generally speaking, after the third generation, Uh, The NASDAQ website tells us that after the third generation, the wealthy families have lost 90% of their wealth. The third generation is a dastardly generation. It invariably catapults you to new heights or you implode into nothingness. And I stand here, I walked in here this this, um, morning at a fleeting kind of, my mind jumped to the different venues that we've worshipped at and led at, and yet, in spite of all the statistics, you're part of the 10% by any yardstick, spiritual, historical, philosophical, social, um, that you have held, not only held your course, but you've stayed true to the assignment God has given you. Is there a problem? That's no, not a problem. I mean, there is a problem, but it's not a problem that there's a problem. <laughs> Good? Okay. I don't mind. We get it right, right at the beginning, before power, glory comes. (laughs) And for some of you, it will be a really transforming morning, and I want to kind of address you this morning. Thank you for the three generations, whatever it is, almost 40-something years or whatever it's been for holding true to the assignment God has given you as a community, as generation after generation has come through the story. Thank you for holding course. I want to thank you, secondly, for your zeal and your passion. We lead a young community in Costa Mesa, California. And whenever they, those who've been here, whenever they hear of others coming to South Africa, there's kind of this, you have to go to Red Point's prayer meeting It's unbelievable. It's 40-some years of praying every week when everyone else dumped their pre meeting because they couldn't get 10 people out. You have established a zeal and a passion and a model that have called all of us, called all of us to a higher journey of discipline in the area of corporate prayer. Thank you for your call to mission, local and global. Obviously, I hear the stories, and for all of that, I am incredibly grateful. And fourthly, thank you for your seemingly endless generosity. Whether your contribution is 500 Rand a month, 5,000 Rand, 500,000, thank you for every dime. I've got a church full of young people, and I never thought I would rejoice when I see a tithe or a amount come in of $9.73. That tells me someone babysat last night and they tithed on their babysitting. And I never realized I would understand the widow's might as well as I do now. Do I love the big checks when they come in? They're not often, but when they come in, I'm super happy. But there is this inner gratitude. Oh, God, thank you for Sarah who looked after those kids last night and tithed on her babysitting. It's a beautiful thing. Please don't be discouraged because your contribution is light. It's not kingdom light, it's man light. And so well done, Red Point. I'm so proud of you. I say that honestly and from the depths of my heart as I transition to my message. We were in Bali in December. We emptied the piggy banks a little bit because it was costly. Uh, Mark and Nass, my oldest daughter, her husband, and their four kids came up from Australia. Hadn't seen them for three years. Dana and Stu, my middle daughter and her husband, whose parents led this church. So we got deep roots here, Sean and Ola. Um, So I have a daughter and grandkids named Dooley. Why they didn't become Venant, I don't know. It's a mystery. I love tradition except that one. In fact, I don't really love tradition. But, and then my son, who's a surfer and whatever. And so we had this incredible time. But en route, I picked up a book. And the book, It's called Art and Faith by a Japanese artist, Makoto Fujimara. It was interesting. I thought, well, let me read. But the more I read, the more I compelled I became by his story. Had no Christian experience whatsoever until he was an adult. He was lecturing at Harvard and Yale. He was Japanese, so um, it was foreign to him. He never grew up with any sense of Christianity whatsoever. I'll come back to him in a moment. But a story in the book captured my attention. Let me take you back to the 15th century Japan. One of the shoguns, kind of tribal leader, one of the shoguns, Ashikaga Yoshimasa, had a particularly favorite bowl that he drank his tea from every day. And in a mishap, as mishaps happen, his bowl shattered on the ground. Devastated was he that his bowl was no longer usable. So he sent it to China where it was made. We're talking the 15th century. It came back from China with effectively been put back together with staples. He was devastated. Not only did it lose its aesthetic beauty, but it was no longer watertight, so he decided to trust some of the local Japanese artists. And what happened started a whole artistic movement called Kintsugi. Would you show the slide, please? This is a slide that gives you an idea of Kintsugi art. And basically what happens as I unfold it, it starts with a pottery owner who finds something beautiful and worthy in the original piece of pottery. He bought it. Now remember in those days, it isn't like today you go down to game or whoever and you get another white plate. Every piece of pottery, every piece of, of, of dinner plates or cups or whatever had value. And so the shogun found great beauty and worth in that piece of poetry, pottery. But of course, as with, happens with all of us, a mistake or misuse breaks, cracks, or chips this piece of pottery. The temptation is to discard it as valueless as we do today and throw it away because it's broken. But the piece is sent to a kintsugi master. And he will take these pieces from the pottery. He will display them, lay them out meticulously with every single detail that has been found, lay it out on a table. How many of you are aware of kintsugi art? Just out of interest. Okay, quite a few of you. But this is part of the thing that really grabbed my attention In the ancient world, when it first happened, they would go to a particular lacquer tree, a tree that produces a certain kind of adhesive. And they would tap around about 100 cc's of that adhesive, that glue from the tree. Here's the amazing part. The tree giving its 100 cc's is its death, its demise. It will be cut down and it will be burnt. It takes 10 to 20 years to grow to the place where you can get the 100 cc's and then they kill it. The master artist then takes the adhesive and he mixes it with gold dust and then meticulously begins to put the pieces together. He fills the broken edges, the chips, the cracks, And it's left to solidify and dry, and the final product, dear friends, is more beautiful and more valuable than the original. Now, why do I tell the story? Because I'm not sure there is a greater picture of gospel beauty as recorded in the world of the arts than this one. Think for a moment with me, if you will. Number one, our original value. When God made us, the psalmist says, David, says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. When you are in your mommy's tummy, can I say this, and I don't know why, even if your mother was raped, you are still fearfully and wonderfully crafted by the eternal creator who seeds you with life and with beauty and with wonder. Your original value is magnificent, but sin and misuse begins to crack us, chip us, and break us. However, in the gospel story, we are not discarded. We are not thrown away because of our brokenness. Now please heed this carefully. The tree gives its life for our restoration. That's the cross. Jesus dropped every ounce of lacquer, blood on our behalf to glue us back to God and to himself. This is not a philosophy. This is not a great artistic moment nor a message that preaches well because I want to argue this morning as we go through, I don't mean argue, argue, I mean debate, dialogue, that number one, many of you do not see your worth because of the time of your birth. You are unexpected, you are not wanted, and you live every moment of the day of every year of your life living under the weight of some parent's displeasure with you. But from God's point of view, dear friends, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a lie seated in the womb. I don't want you. Get away from me. I want to dispel you from my humanness. But the truth of the story is that that's not true. This is true, that God has fearfully and wonderfully crafted you, forged you, shaped you. It took nine months, not three And he meticulously put you together cell by cell, bone by bone, blood drop by blood drop. Every detail of you, it was part of his authorship. And if that was not beautiful enough, that in the womb, and then subsequent to the womb, brokenness, chips, cracks, have begun to evidence your life. You are not discarded, dear friends. The Father who created you with such joy and such delight, is the one who looks at your brokenness and says, give me an opportunity to rebuild you. Give me an opportunity to take what the cross did and the blood from the cross to create an adhesive with gold so that the final product, when the Kintsugi master is is completed, is that bowl is more valuable and more expensive than its original form. And the enemy lies to us, dear friends. The enemy tells us that I was either seeded in ungodliness or my life has produced in me a separation. Who would ever accept me? Which God would ever love me and restore me to brokenness? And the enemy says, you are absolutely right. You are not worthy. The slightest investment of an eternal creator to glue you back together with gold. Now, we'll come back to that later on. I want to speak to you in the light of that around biblical confession. And I want you to grab your Bibles with me if you don't mind and go to a well-known text in 1 John, beautiful book written around about 96 to 98. He was the final last man standing apostle who had walked with Jesus. I see him walking up and down pacing a scribe sitting there writing everything. His eyes are dulled. His hand is shaking. His body is frail. Some argued that they tried to boil him, but he would not be boiled. I don't know if that's true. It's legend. I suspect more than fact. But he is the last man standing. And I want to be with someone who knows someone. You know what I mean? I don't want to be with someone who's written a book about someone. So if you, if you said to me, John, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> is going to be here tonight. <coughs> I want to be with someone who was with Jesus because he's going to tell me what really matters. And if I, we're going to teach this book at home when I get home on Legacy, What Really Matters, and unpackage this book about the 10 things that we feel really matter in our Christian faith. So I want to pick up in chapter 1, and I want to read from verse 5. The words will be on the screen behind me. This is the message we have heard from him. And we proclaim to you. In other words, I've heard this from him. This isn't me reading a thing or two. This is I heard Jesus. This is what Jesus said is the most important thing or things, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say if, 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 if five times, if we say we have fellowship with him, While we walk in darkness, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Anyone who says you can be a Christian and behave any way you want to does not know the Bible and does not know that God is light. If we walk in the light and he is in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. It's the great leveler. We're all sinners. And the truth is not in us. If if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. You know, if I were throw up the word holiness, invariably, if you've been around the church long enough or at least perceive, you can take that slide. Okay, there we go. Thank you. Invariably, holiness runs something like this. There is a certain set of rules. We don't really know who defined them. We cherry pick them out, the Bible, and I'm holy if I do a little bit better in each one of those ten things. Well, is that really what holiness is about? Firstly, I want to argue that the Bible is not a morality manual, it's an invitation. And holiness is not a performance based set of moral rules, it's an invitation to proximity. Holiness is where I position myself with Jesus. Jesus. I sit with way too many people. I feel so unholy, Chris. I, 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 and then they give me this, this performance set, these behavioral things that they've done poorly recently. And, and, I, and I'm going to get more holy, and I'm going to pray more, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to read my Bible more, and I'm going to give more money. And they wonder why they live in this collided world of expectations and unmet expectations and always come out feeling unholy. But can I argue, strongly suggest to you, holiness Is not performance, it is proximity. It's where I am in conjunction to Him. Isn't it amazing? On the cross, what was the loudest moment, as best as we can read in the text? Jesus is hanging on the cross and He cries out in Aramaic, Eli, ela, Lama Sabachthani. What did He say? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Proximity is broken, and Jesus did not know what to do with it. He wasn't crying because of the pain. He wasn't crying because of the weight of the sin of the world that was on him. It was the loss of proximity that got him to scream from the tree. So, so many of us live with the limp because we don't believe our performance is adequate, a holy life. I listen to people preach on holiness and I want to say, please shut up. Please shut up. Holiness is not when I pray more, fast more, give more, read more. Holiness is when I am in his presence. Because when I'm in His presence, I will reflect Him. Because He is light, and I will reflect His light. He is pure, I will reflect His purity. It's impossible to be in His presence and not come out radiant. Remember Moses when he came down the mountain after getting the, 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 the commandments? It said his face radiated. Holiness, dear friends, is proximity, not performance. There's a fun Catholic father, Michael Schmidt, who runs a YouTube channel for young Catholics. And he was speaking about confession, and he asked his congregation when they come in for confession, Has God been number one in your life? Is God the center of your life? And he says it is so telling that invariably they'll say something like, well, I've tried to be a good person. How many of you have tried to be a good person? I mean, that sucks. I mean, well, I tried to be a good person. What does that mean? Does that mean you scream at your dog less? You slap your kids infrequently? You tip the beggar at the—what at the, does that mean? What, what, what does any of that mean? He says, no, the question is not, he asks them, well, I've tried to be a good person. And Father Mike says, well, that's not what I asked. Where is God in your life? That's the question that I asked. It's not about morality or performance. It's about proximity. The closer we are to him, the more we become like him. I remember our Pops Bunker in the Westville Methodist Church when I was a teenager. And Pops Bunker was so interesting because he was really old. I'm sure he was like my age. And uh, you know, in Methodism, you sing the first, third, and fifth verse. I never know why anyone ever wrote the second and the fourth one because we never sang them. But, but Pops did the, 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 the inexpectable, the unexpected. He would sing the chorus again how great thou art and we all smile at each other nudge each other you know the goes pop pops how great one more time one more time everyone how great and we all like smile but everyone wanted a piece of pops why because he'd been with jesus our methodist roots kind of smiled poor pops we sang the chorus twice like whatever but to just be near him to be near him. Who do we despise most? The legalistic Christians who always point out the things we haven't done well. Who wants to be near them? As they, as they kind of approach us, we want to duck out the back door. We want to disappear because we don't pray enough. We don't do this enough. We don't do that enough. But those who've been with Jesus, who've been in proximity to him, carry an intrinsic peace, rest, ease, forgiveness, kindness, not because they're trying to be kind, but when you've been with the altogether kind one, you will become kind. When you've been with the altogether good one, you will be good. When you have been forgiven by the altogether forgiving one. Makoto Fujimura says this. In Eastern Christian sacraments, they called sacred mysteries. Confession is one of them. He says, because we experience God's forgiving love. He's a Japanese man. He interprets his Christianity through that Eastern Christian sacrament. But listen to these two quotes, and I'll highlight the pieces that I think are so valuable. He continues, the truth, of course, as an unbeliever, the truth, of course, was that it was all my own self, my own impiety that divided me against myself. Here it comes. My sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. You and I are at our most dangerous when we justify the things we do badly, when we don't look after this body that's the treasure of the Holy Spirit. When I fill my mind with unkindness and perversions, And I justify that. I don't think myself a sinner. I am the most dangerous of humans. And the problem, dear friends, and I say this as one who is with you, when we've been in the church for a long time, we live comfortably and easily with our own explanations, our own excuses, our own reasons. And he says, Fujimoro says, I did not think myself a sinner. He carries on. But my sin was like this. I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in Christ, but in myself. One of the things that pains me when I come back to Durban, and there are a few things, not because I'm living in cool America. I can keep you busy for an hour on everything that's wrong in and in a civilization that's imploding. As an historian, brutally obvious, and people are living as in the days of Noah. one of the things that causes me pain is those who've walked with the Lord for a long time who do not think themselves a sinner, who have pursued a highly selfish, highly self-preoccupying, highly unbiblical life, and they explain it because they are not sinners. My sin was this, I carry on the quote, that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in Christ, but in myself and his other creatures. Here it comes. And the search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. Okay. Confession. When the Catholics and the Protestants split way back in the 1500s, oversimplistically, the Protestants got the Scriptures and the pulpit. The Catholics got the spiritual disciplines and um, uh, the spiritual practices. Confession is one of them. Ask the average Protestant, when last have you had a moment of true confession? Not you and Jesus. That's not what it says here. I mean, forgive my crassness, that's BS. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian, questions whether confession by myself is true biblical Confession. But Martin Luther said this, therefore when I admonish you to confession, I'm admonishing you to be a Christian. I'll be very practical when I land in a few minutes' time. I'm admonishing you to confession, confession of faith, confession of sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know who he is? Died in the hands of the Nazis in Germany in 1945. He says, a man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows he is no longer <coughs> alone with himself, experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. As long as I am by myself in confession of my sins, everything remains dark. But in the presence of a brother, the sin has to be brought into the light. Richard Foster says confession is a difficult discipline for us as we all too often view the believing community as the fellowship of saints. We look around and say, dang, if they know what I went through. But look at them. All the young people walking like this in the worship. I don't know, Daniel, if you teach that at youth, but they're all doing it. (laughs) Beautiful, actually. But he says this, we are not firstly the fellowship of saints, but we're the fellowship of sinners. Everyone else is so advanced, we feel that we feel isolated and alone. Let me tell you a couple of stories quickly. One from America, one from South Africa. When I led Glenridge, a young man came to me one day, and he said, Chris, I have to tell you. So I said, okay. He said, I've watched you. I think I can trust you with this. These are not superficial things. These are not I was tempted to look at pornography last night, and that is horrible. These are deep things that some of you are sitting with. And you feel like it's your lot in life that no one can ever find out what really, really happened to you. It's a lie from darkness, dear friends. This young man sat across the way from me, dysfunctional home, brutal dad, unhappy upbringing. And in the chaos and confusion of circumstances of his family of origin, he ended up dabbling in homosexuality. But no one knew but him and his friend. He was now in his late 20s and he carried the stain of that unit of time in his life. And I sat there completely ill-equipped to handle it. I have no degree in psychology, I have no ability in counseling, but I knew this was a very sacred moment. He was letting me into the deepest inner sanctum of his soul. We had let no one else go, I was told. And I cried out to God, I said, Lord, I have no idea what to do with this information. And then I think, prompted by the Spirit, I said, I want you to write this all down, which he did, took a few minutes. And I took him outside to our house in Edmunds Road, and we made a fire, and I burnt that. And I said, God has forgiven you because the Bible says that we need to forgive on his behalf. It's one of those kind of weird texts. And I said to my brother, all that I can say is that God forgives. You know what we tend to do in these moments? Oh, it's no problem, bro. I also struggled with lust, you know? Well, I wasn't like guy on guy thing. I was like guys on chicks. And we all go through it, and it's no big deal, and don't worry about it. That is not confession, and we're not helping anyone with that. It's sitting, listening carefully with an ear tuned to the Holy Spirit and an ear to a broken heart. And as we sat there burning that piece of paper, He just flooded with tears as the years of shame and guilt peeled off him. And I held him, and we prayed together. Confession is the deepest form of deliverance and freedom that has been left on the shelf as a Catholic practice. And if we sometimes confess, we confess to, one, ourselves, God, I'm so sorry I did that, or maybe to some other neutral person where we couch it soft, not really as punchy, what really happened. And we wonder why some people drift into spiritual apathy, spiritual discouragement, spiritual disorientation, because the passion goes when sin remains. Story two in America. It was a big jump leaving Glenridge, vibey, cool, hip, in the 30s, to land in a church that average age fifties. Glenridge, most people were graduates, studied, college, university, most of the people in the church in, I think there were two who, were, who had degrees in, um, in the church in America. About two, three years in, a man asked if he could come and see me. man in his 50s. I said, sure. He said, can we have a private place? I said, absolutely. We sat outside in my garden. And he looked at me. He said, you know, I trust you. I said, okay, thank you. He said, what I'm going to tell you today <clears throat> I've never told anyone, okay? Been in the church a long time, got saved decades before. He said, my father was brutal with my mother. And eventually he left. And my mother, in the trauma of what she went through, made me her sexual partner. From my teenage years, she would want me to sleep with her and be intimate with her. And I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't do anything about it. Ladies and gentlemen, a man born again by the Spirit of God, a man who could speak in tongues, a man who could minister through the Spirit, carried in his inner sanctum a soul, a debauchery so weighty that he could never share it with anyone until that day. And I listened long. I listened hard. I have no idea if I did a good job, but I knew confession was important to him as there was a visible sense of the weight coming off his shoulders as he spoke the word, his story, to me in depth. Pulled no punches. Didn't try and soften it. Well, it didn't mean anything. Deep, deep, deep. Confession is a remarkable gift from the Most High, To unlock the deepest bruisings, brokenness in our soul. What is your story that no one knows? Were you molested as a kid? No one knows. Were you raped as a 14-year-old on a date? No one knows. Abused at boarding school? Now, this isn't to be flippant or... to to kind of engender some emotional response, I want to offer you the promise of Kintsugi. That when we acknowledge our brokenness and we put the pieces on the table and we submit to the supreme master, all those brokennesses come together and are glued together with gold sprinkles so that the you that is put together is even more beautiful with greater capacity and greater freedom than the you when you were first born but the lie of the enemy and an empty toolbox. Protestants don't know how to confess. It doesn't mean you go to your best friend and say, oh, dang, I slept with my buddy's wife. Oh, you too. Yeah, I did too. And I want to land softly explaining three things why confession is a gift to a spiritual toolbox. Number one, Confession restores proximity. John opens up this book where he says, I know him, I sense him, I feel him, I hear him, I proclaim him. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. In him there is no darkness at all, dear friends. We're in a fellowship of sinners We all have stories. Things have happened to all of us that we wished hadn't happened or things we did that we wished we did not do. But we're not captive to a secular mind that stains us, that teaches us to live with these depravities. The gospel mind invites us from brokenness to wholeness, from darkness to light, from evil to goodness. If we have fellowship with him, We will walk in dark. We will. Sorry, if we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie, and do not practice the truth. I can hear endless talks on worship, but if my soul is stained by the sin that I hide in the dark places, I can try and fulfill the outward expectations. I'm a charismatic. This is what charismatics do. But my inner soul screams hypocrisy, not for reasons of judgment. But for invitation to freedom. Come, come. I want to make you free. I want to put those broken pieces together. Kintsugi. Secondly, confession removes the effects of this rebellion, removes the effects of this rebellion. Shame. Shame isn't a South Africanism that is the one word that covers everything. Hi, this is my new baby. Oh, shame. <laughs> the Americans look at their babies and say, what? What's wrong with my baby? Why do you say shame? Now, Adam felt shame when God called him. Adam, where are you? He said, I felt shame. And sin always brands me with shame. Guilt. Guilt is the trigger to a holy life in greater proximity with him. Isolation, anxiety, blame. Many people have come out of COVID, particularly the men, with deeply stained uh, mental health because you went where your eyes and hands are not supposed to go. This is not a message of judgment It's an invitation to Kensugi. Not only is confession an invitation to proximity, an invitation to the effects of the rebellion being, if we walk in the light, he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us of all our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just, To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that what you want? Not only proximity, not only the effects of our sin, but thirdly, it realigns me to a divine life. It realigns me to a divine life. I'm biblically authentic. I'm personally authentic. I'm communally authentic. You know what, folks? Can I have that slide up again, please, gentlemen? Okay. I'm going to land. <laughs> 64, 65 in July. At times I'm really tired. I've been in the front line for over 40 years. Travel the world, my body's taking a beating, I have a heart issue. At times I feel like just sitting at home. I can't even have a beer because it affects my heart. So I have a Heineken Zero. Go figure. <laughs> Cry for me, Argentina. <laughs> That's why I want to stay at home. It's good. Walk the Newport Beach with Meryl, hand in hand. See my little grandkiddos come and play around me. Hey, Papa. Can we give me a big hug? It's, it's too hard too long but this gospel is too gorgeous to be locked in a selfish lifestyle built simply around me I am a super fan of the local church I want you to know that otherwise I wouldn't have planted at 57 I am a super fan of men and women who are just like me who are trying to find a life that brings glory to Jesus empowered by the spirit and a joy to a face. Every time I see this little community that we lead, every time someone comes and hugs me, because I'm the father they never had, I say, Lord, it's worth it. I limp deeply. For those of you who are outside of Christian community, and I'm not talking about you and your mates, that's not biblical community. That's fellowship. It was the 15th century that the shogun broke the bowl, his beloved bowl, and it scattered across the floor of his palace. And he got his servants to sweep up the pieces and put them together and sent them to China so that they could be repaired. And he was devastated when after some months it returned stapled. And rather than give up that his beautiful bowl was no longer watertight nor beautiful, he sent it to the Japanese artists and they started the art of kintsugi. Where they take a broken, cracked or shattered bowl that is deeply intimate and loved by the owner. And they go to a tree that will give its life to produce but a hundred cc's of glue. And they take gold and they sprinkle the gold on the adhesive and meticulously over a three-month period they put that bowl together, giving it time to get stronger and solidify and then gets presented to the owner one more time and without exception it's more beautiful, it's more valuable, and it's larger than it was before. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. And that is the hope you have. It's not how broken you are. It's would you put your hands, yourself in the hands of the Kensugi master. And let him put you together. The cross emptied Jesus so that we could have his blood that would glue us in a story from brokenness to wholeness. And confession is one of the vehicles that he uses to unlock a broken soul. And to restore us in union with him, Jesus, the altogether wonderful one. Thank you.